Good morning. Psalm 122 says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we hope that that's all of our, our um, thoughts as we get ready for our mornings on Sundays, that we rejoice as we come to the house of the Lord to meet with his body each Sunday. Today is a little bit of a simpler service instrument-wise. We just have piano and choir uh, for our worship songs today, but we do have a few special things because I've invited some of the students from our uh, GO team trip, uh, the junior high, to join our choir. So you will see a few different faces today, and they have been a great addition. It's been great for one generation to proclaim your name to another, both within our choir and now um, here as we sing together. So we celebrate that opportunity, and we're excited to do that together this morning. Um, Psalm 96 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. We rejoice in that, Lord, this morning. Let's stand and sing.
Pray with me silently as I read a prayer from the Valley of Vision that has spoken deeply to me in the last few weeks. O lover to the uttermost, may I see the yearnings of your heart to me in the manger of your birth, in the garden of your agony, in the cross of your suffering, in the tomb of your resurrection, in the heaven of your intercession. Bold in this thought, I defy my adversary, tread down his temptations, resist his schemings, renounce the world, and am valiant for truth. Deepen in me a sense of my holy relationship to you. I think of your glory and my vileness, your majesty and my meanness, your beauty and my deformity, your purity and my filth, your righteousness and my sin. You have loved me everlastingly, unchangeably. May I love you as I am loved. You have given yourself for me. May I give myself to you. You have died for me. May I live to you. May I never follow after the world and its allurements, but walk by your side, listen to your voice, be clothed with your grace, and adorned with your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing about that great love of God.
right, good morning, familia. I wanted to share just a few things with you before we do our pastoral prayer. Uh, but even before I do that, I want to start by honoring uh, to whom honor is deserved. Um, so last week I was supposed to be preaching here. Uh, and on Saturday night, around 8 p.m., I started to feel a little icky. Um, so I called Brent, Pastor Brent, at 9 p.m. to get ready for the sermon on Sunday. And he delivers. So we want to give glory to God for that. So this is a really special week um, for us as a church. Today we get to celebrate um, the ministry of our middle school, of middle school ministry, if you will, junior high. So last week they had their missions, the annual mission trip. Um, so from June 26th to the 30th, uh, 31 students from grades 7 and 8 plus 6 adults uh, went to serve alongside with Restoration Ministry in Harvey, Illinois. Uh, from what I hear, that was an amazing, amazing week. Restoration Ministries started ministering in the late 80s um, in the residential area, helping people uh, with re uh, drug rehabilitation for men and women. Um, that ministry continued to grow, uh, to grow. Now they have a food bank, an after-school program, a community garden, as well as two thrift stores. And our students uh, got to participate and serve in many of those uh, areas of ministry. It was an amazing thing for us students to see and participate. And just, if, just in case you don't know, part of the reason why we do this is because we feel that our middle school students should be exposed and should experience what it means to serve our community and either and even some communities that are, are not part of our community, but that they're doing something for the glory of God and the well-being of others. So how about if we give glory to God for that? Now, the second thing that I wanted to share with you is that just as the junior high had their t uh, trip last week, this week as we speak, uh, our high schoolers are doing their trip. They actually left yesterday. Uh, so right now, my wife and I are empty nesters. Um, I'm not enjoying that. I got to tell you that much. Uh, but it's only the first day. We'll see what happens later. Um, so 52 students and 18 adults. Uh, went into uh, Cleveland, and they're in Cleveland right now, and over there, they're partnering with Parma Heights Baptist Church to help them in two areas, so to serve with along, along with them in two areas. We're going to help them run their vacation Bible school, which is significant because this is the first vac uh, uh, vacation Bible school that they're doing since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so our students get to participate in that. And they're also going to be helping around the community um, with the stuff that we usually do. Helping uh, with construction, um, family homes, uh, serving meals in a soup kitchen, repackaging uh, medical supplies. So I want to invite you to pray for them uh, as the Lord. Uh, let's pray that the Lord does something in them. When I was praying for my daughters uh, yesterday before they left, um, my prayer was not only that they would serve the community well, and they would establish good relationships, but because of this trip that they would get to know the Lord more. Because at the end of the day, the only way we're going to get to serve other people is if we know the Lord more. Amen? And lastly, I want to invite you to continue to pray for the church and to sustain the church financially. 
Part of the way we worship the Lord is with our finances. And I want to remind you that there's always, uh, always three different ways in which you could do this. You could give uh, directly online. You could send, for those of you that are worshiping online, you could send your, your offering to the offices of the church. And if you're here, um, you could always drop your offerings by the, by the entrances. There's a couple of boxes. You could just deposit your millions as you leave. Is that good? Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are so grateful that we get to be the church. We are grateful that we got to worship together this morning and recognize who you are and declare who you are, how beautiful, perfect, and amazing you are. Lord, we get to worship you because you have revealed yourself to us first. We are just responding to the beauty that we see in Jesus Christ. Lord, and that's also part of the reason why our students went, the junior high team went last week and did what they did. We are simply responding to your mercy and your grace and your love and, your, and the manifestation of your presence. It is the same reason, Lord, why the high schoolers this week are doing what they're doing. Because we are responding to you revealing yourself to us, showing us your love and your grace. And this is also part of the reason why we give, and we give sacrificially. Because we are responding to your love, your grace, your mercy. Lord, I know that life sometimes is difficult. And many of my brothers and sisters today might be going through extremely difficult situations, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of everything they go through, they always remember that the same God that manifested himself is the same God that is in them. And is the same God that is for them until you take us home. I pray, I pray for peace. I pray for your presence. I pray for humility. I pray for resilience. I pray for faith. And we pray for hope. Lord, we pray that you speak to us today. That as we open up a scripture, your Holy Spirit use that scripture for the glory of your name and our well-being. I pray, Lord, that the preaching of your word not only transform our minds, but affects our emotions and influence our will. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says... Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will be reading from Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. If you have your journals, it's on page 36. Otherwise, you can follow in your own Bible or on the screen. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. All right, so today uh, we are finishing the last part of part two in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we also finishing the last part of this section of the scripture that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. so I want to prep you for this because I, I believe, well, first of all, I haven't preached for four weeks, and usually what happens when I, I don't preach for so long, I come with a lot of energy, um, and usually I go longer than what I'm supposed to, and I'm going to be fighting my instincts to actually stick to my time, all right? But I'm giving you that warning because the passage we're reading today is extremely confrontational, and... It is so easy to misinterpret what Jesus is saying and trying to say if we only hear the confrontational part, but we don't see the reasoning or the motive behind the confrontational part. So if there's one thing that we can know about Jesus is that Jesus will never say anything or confront you in any way that at the end of the day is not the best thing for you and for me. So if you feel offended by the end of the sermon, it's just that I haven't preached in four weeks. But it's not Jesus. What I want to invite you to see is that whatever Jesus is going to say here is the best thing for you. It's because he loves you. And this is the gist gist of it. Right here in the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to make a clear distinction between authentic Christianity and nominal Christianity. He is talking to two groups of people, those that are believers and those that think that are believers, or those that are believers and those that are religious, if you will. He is not talking about the unbeliever and the believer. He's actually making the conversation here is for those that are truly, truly believers are the ones that think that they're believers. And to the truly believers, he's going to say, keep going. And to the ones that are not there yet, who says, this is the reason why you got to choose me. So he's going to talk about four things. He's going to talk about two ways, two fruits, two wills, and two foundations. And he is going to make it extremely clear that in life, there are only two options. That either you are with Jesus or you are against Jesus. 
That either you worship Jesus or you're going to worship something else. That you and I don't get to be neutral. There's either Jesus or nothing else. I told you that it was going to be confrontational. And I know that people may hear something like that and we say, well, this is the problem that I have with Christianity. Doesn't that sound like very, like a, something that a narrow-minded person would say? I know what people, how people will respond and say, well, Christianity, that's why I don't like Christianity, because it's not inclusive. And if that's your case, I want to invite you to consider that we do that with everything in life. You always choose one thing. We never choose two things, even though we think we're choosing two things. And if that's your case, I want to invite you to consider the why, uh, the why behind everything Jesus is going to say here. So because it's a confrontational sermon and I'm going to try to kill my cool, keep my cool down, uh, I need you to do me a favor. Can you please look at the person next to you and say this? Get ready. This is about to get real. Go ahead. That's scary, isn't it? I'm nervous. I'm nervous for me and I'm nervous for you. I got to tell you. Let's go with my first point. There's only two ways. Jesus starts here with a metaphor. And in verse 13 and 14, he says this. Enter through the narrow gate. And then, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And right from the beginning, he starts by describing Christianity as something that to a certain level feels restrictive. And I actually think that's part of the intention. See, the word narrow in the original can be translated as uh, confined or restrictive. So Christianity, to a certain level, it is restrictive. And it is, uh, and it confines you to a certain degree. Right? And and God and Jesus do want you to be narrow-minded, in a sense, to have one focus. So there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Actually, what Jesus means by the word narrow here is more like difficult or costly. He's saying that to follow Jesus, the way of Jesus is narrow because it's difficult and costly. Why do I say that? Well, because when you look at the root of the word narrow there, the definition of that root is groan. It's to groan. That's why if you grew up in Christianity and you grew up with the King James Version, any of you guys grew up with that version? Beautiful version. We just don't read it here. It's too complicated. An immigrant can't read it. But (laughs) this is part of the reason why the New King James Version uses the word straight. Which means to experience trouble or difficulty. I think that that's a better translation. Jesus is saying that the way of Jesus, to follow Jesus, is costly and many times difficult. Now, there's a couple of questions you got to ask the text, though, just to make sure that we are on the same page. Why would Jesus say that to follow Jesus is difficult or costly? Since he also says, and you're going to see that later on as we continue to read uh, Matthew, he says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't Jesus contradicting himself? The second question that you probably have to ask the text is, why would Jesus say that following him is difficult and costly, and yet thousands, about thousands of people, not only live for Jesus, but gladly die for Jesus? 
I think that those are two important questions to answer. Why would Jesus say that to follow him is difficult and costly? Well, I think that the answer is actually really simple. I, I, I think that the reason why Jesus says that is not because of him. I don't think that he's saying that following him is costly or difficult because of him. You know why? Because the Bible says that he's gentle and lowly. I also don't think that he's saying that this is, to follow him is costly and difficult because of the things he demands. The Bible says and reminds us that his laws are a delight. I think that if you follow in my train of thought, I think that the answer is super simple. Part of the reason why Jesus says that to follow him is difficult and costly is not because of who he is and what he says. It's because of who we are and what we have. It is costly because as human fallen human beings, to deny ourselves is hard. Can anybody agree with that? Because as, as fallen human beings, we tend to be driven by our desires and by our feelings. It is hard because as human beings, we want to play God. It is hard because as fallen human beings, we want a God, but that is a God of our own imagination. The God that we would like to have. I think that Jesus is saying this because as fallen human beings, it is hard to trust him. I think that he's saying what he's saying because we have a hard time placing our trust and hope in him and him alone. Actually, our tendency is to trust other things and put our hope in other things. That's what, it's, that's what the Bible talks about, idolatry. What makes it difficult, once again, is not him and not what he requires of us. What makes it difficult is your heart and my heart. This is the way one of the scholars puts it. There is no room for me to set my opinions against the Lord's. No room to set my goals in any way at a cross purposes to his. No room to form attachments that compete for the central place the Lord Jesus must have. Can you see what Jesus is saying? And that's why some people find Christianity not so appealing. Unless you understand everything else he said. He says that if we embrace his way and we embrace what he says, eventually that leads to life. Which the word life is a beautiful word in scripture. Because in the context of the text, it seems like if Jesus is using the word life to talk about heaven. And I think that he is. He's saying that if we embrace this narrow gate, this small road, eventually we would experience life, but not just in heaven, but here. Zoe, that would be the word. Beautiful name. And life here means that you feel alive even when things are going wrong. Means that you have substance even when things are going wrong. That you have a purpose to live for even when things are going wrong. See, what Christianity offers is much more than just existing or surviving. What Christianity offers is life. A different mentality, a different worldview, a different experience. Even 
if you lose it all. I'm sure that many of you guys are familiar with one of the disciples of the Apostle John, Polycarp. He's known for something that he said right before he got, he got executed for his faith. You know, the executors are going to him and say, deny Jesus, which is usually what they do. And this is what he says. 86 years I have served him, the Lord, and he never did me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The life that Jesus offers when we embrace the narrow road, when we choose to deny ourselves and embrace him, is a genuine life, a life, a life of substance, and a life of purpose. You don't get to choose two different ways. I don't get to choose two different ways. It's either him or the text is going to say the wide gate or the broad road in verse 13. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and, may, and many enter through it. You know, that passage is crazy to me because he says that you could take that road and it feels less restrictive and more open-minded and more empowering. But we fail to see that that road leads to self-destruction. See, if you believe that we are fallen human beings, then you also have to believe that our worst enemy is not the one sitting next to you, nor the devil nor the world. The worst enemy, it's you. My worst enemy, it's me. You guys remember a few years ago? I hope you didn't watch the movie, but let's see if you remember the title. Sleeping with the enemy? I'm sleeping with the enemy every night, and he's not Heidi. <laughs> Just in case. There's only two ways. That's how radical and confronting this is. It's either Jesus or something else. But it cannot be both. So the question that you have to ask is, how do I really know if I have Jesus as my only way? Well, Jesus is about to answer that with my point number two. By the outcome of your life, the fruit of your life, point number two. We only have two fruits. Here Jesus now is going to use the example of these false spiritual leaders, um, almost like in a way for us to see what they do and for us to walk away from their example. These are false teachers, which is ironic because in the text it shows us that they do everything right. Externally they do everything right, but internally their motivations are wrong. If there's one thing that I want you to remember here, church, as much as you can, that it is possible, can you say possible, to do everything right externally with the complete wrong motives. You heard that? It is possible to do everything in your Christianity externally right and your motives to be in the wrong place. God is not impressed by their behavior. 
God is not impressed by the things we do right. What God cares at the end of the day is the motives. Why is it that we do the things we do? Why is it that we believe the things that we believe? Why is it that we practice the things that we practice? Listen up to this principle. The outcome of your life eventually will, be, will match the motives of your hearts. It's just a matter of time. The fruit of your life eventually will match the motives of your heart. This is why from verses, this is why Jesus says from verses 16 through 18 the following thing. By their fruit you will recognize them. And in verse 17, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus says that motives matter. And that eventually, those motives will give its fruit. Motives matter, not just behavior. You see, that would be one of the differences between Christianity and religion. Christianity will focus on your heart. Jesus pursues your heart. Religion looks for behavior modification. You know that I could change my daughter's behavior with two tools that are super successful. This is not part of the notes, by the way. So it has to be from the spirit. <laughs> I could modify the behavior of my daughters with two things, very effective. Fear, if I say, I'm gonna take your phone away, you should see their expressions. Oh, oh, like if I told them that they're gonna go to hell. Fear or pride. If you behave, I'm going to get you a new phone. If you behave, life is going to be good for you. If you behave, everything is going to be perfect. Fear or pride. But that's not how people change. That's not how you change. You change when your heart changes. Therefore, motives matter. I'm going to give you two examples really quick here. One, uh, an example from a study that I was reading, and one that comes from the Bible. So this study that I was reading uh, was making, analyzing why is it that some couples, after they have gone through a really, really, really rough season, why is it that they end up splitting up? When things got better. So let's say that you have a spouse that is struggling here, and you have another spouse that is trying to help, doing everything in his or her power to help, Right? And by God's grace, everything turns around and the relationship gets better. But when the relationship gets better, the spouse that was helping here, when this person gets better, the spouse that was helping here, usually, says the study, walk away from the relationship. So what the study is trying to prove is that the motives of this person were wrong right from the beginning. That the reason why this person was helping the struggling spouse was not so much because of love, was not so much because wanted to help, was because this person wanted to be needed. Was because this person had a savior complex. But if 
by God's grace, the relation gets fixed, then this person no longer has a job. So what I see or she do? Walks away from the relationship. Don't you find that weird? Motives matter. Can you say motives matter? Here's a second story. Second example. This one comes from the Bible. I'm sure that many of you guys are familiar with the prophet uh, Balaam. This comes from Numbers, uh, starting in chapter, Numbers chapter 22. And this is the gist of the story. The Israelites are growing in number. And all the surrounding nations are get, starting to get worried because the Israelites are, grow, are, are growing in number. One of the kings of those nations was Balak. He was the king of the Moabites. And if you know anything about Bible history, the Moabites and the Israelites were always enemies. So this king hires this prophet to curse the Israelites. So he calls him and he says, please curse these people so we could defeat them. And Balaam says something similar to this. I'm only going to do what the Lord tells me to do. Which sounds like the right thing that a prophet would say. So Balaam comes back, uh, Balak comes back a second time. And he says, I'm going to give you, this is the phrase, a handsomely reward. I'm going to give you silver and gold if you would just curse the Israelites. To which Balaam responds once again, I cannot do that. I could only do what the Lord tells me to do. So he comes back a third time. And he says, why are you basically, why are you denying yourself of this pleasure? Why are you denying yourself from this reward? Curse the Israelites and for the third time he says, I'm only going to do, it doesn't matter how much money you give me. It doesn't matter how much silver or, or gold you give me. It doesn't matter, what he says is, if you empty your palace and give it to me, I will not do what the Lord uh, doesn't tell me to do. So he takes him to a mountain. And instead of cursing the Israelites, he blessed them. Eleven chapters later, that's why you got to read the Bible. Eleven chapters later, in Numbers 31, actually that's not 11, whatever number, 9. In, in uh, Numbers 31, the Israelites are fighting the Moabites. And they killed a ton of people. Among them, Balaam. And you're like, what? Why was Balaam there? Didn't he do everything right before? See, when you read the story, it tells you that Balaam did everything right externally, but because his motives were wrong, he found the way to tell the Moabites what to do to curse the Israelites. So he could get his reward. You know what he did? Brilliant. He told the Moabite woman to seduce the Israelite men. Because he knew that the Israelites were really good handling a weapon. But couldn't handle their hearts. They were really good fighting, but not handling their desires. And they worship other gods. 
It is possible to do everything right with the wrong motives. Motives matter. The outcome of your life eventually will match the motives of your heart. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Why would Jesus say this? Because he wants you to choose life. He doesn't want you to confuse good behavior with wrong motives. He wants you to live a life, a plentiful life, a sufficient life, a purposeful life. And that could only happen if your motives are right. That's the only way that we can have a genuine relationship with him, where our motives are right. So this is what Jesus says. The only way that you're going to live the life that Jesus wants for you is when we truly know not only that Jesus is the way, but when we learn to assess or observe our fruit and the motives that leads us to that fruit. So the following question to ask is this. Is there a way for us to check if our motives are right? Because if you don't learn how to check or make an assessment on your motives, then we have, no, we, we have a ton of issues. And the answer is yes. There is a way for your motives to be to change and to be right. And this is my third point, two wheels. I can't believe it, but I'm doing awesome in my time today. <laughs> two wheels. You remember that at the beginning of, uh, of the sermon, I told you that this was going to be confrontational? Part of the reason is because I think that this passage that we are about to read, these verses that we are about to read, are the most confrontational of the whole section. So he's still talking, Jesus is still talking about these false prophets. And he's still talking about these people that are at the superficial level, they do everything right. But in their inward part, they do everything wrong. I mean, these people are so good at the things they do that if they were part of our church, I guarantee you that there will be pastors, elders, and leaders in the church. I guarantee you. So look at what verse 21 says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I will explain that in a second, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I'm going to explain the first part of the verse, and then I'm going to come back later on to the second part of the verse. But let me explain it this way. The, the religious leaders, um, you could say to a certain degree, they were charismatic. You know, they had this thing that, they, that when they would communicate and talk about God, people felt something. You know, when they communicated, they talked about God, their emotions were engaged. They were enthusiastic about what they were proclaiming. How do I know that? How do I know that? It's because when the Bible, whenever the Bible uses this double thing, Lord, Lord, dun, 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 usually when the Bible shows you that, this repetition of words, is because that expresses intensity. So when they're talking about God, Lord, Jesus, Lord, they're not just saying, oh, Lord, like, Lord, Lord. So this is what Jesus is saying. You have intensity. You show emotions. It seems like if you really care. But then he tells them in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, judgment day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. See, these people are convinced that their heart was in the right place. See, they had the right doctrine. They were orthodox believers. They had the right beliefs. They prophesied in the name of Jesus. They were bold, courageous, and had enough faith to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They would do supernatural things like performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, but on judgment day, he says this in verse 23. He would say to them, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Let us think for a second. Because Jesus doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. You got to ask the question, why? Because it is possible to do everything right and yet not do the Father's will. How is that? How is it possible that someone could do everything right and not be doing the Father's will? And this is the confrontational part, church. Because you could do everything for Jesus. Come to church, read the Bible, serve, give money, do whatever you want to do. But because you're doing what you want to do for Jesus. Not necessarily what he wants you to do. It is possible for us to do everything right because we want to do it. Not because God wants you to do it. You know what the test is? The test is when his will crosses your will. The test is when God asks you to do something, surrender something, accomplish something, and his will crosses your will. I think it's uh, Daniel Doriani, scholar from Covenant Theological Seminary, that he says, if you want to know if you're doing the will of God, pay attention to those verses that you never underline. That's a good way to do it, right? Listen to D.A. Carson. The Father's will is not simply to be admired, discussed, praised, debated. It is done. It is not theologically analyzed nor congratulated for its higher ethical tones. It is done. It's about obedience. It's when his will crosses your will. Listen to John Stott. The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus. Nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching. But whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. 
is when his will crosses your will. So you gotta ask the question, is there anything in my life that I'm not willing to surrender? Is there anything that I'm holding back? You know what a problem is? At least, let me put it this way. You know what, what my problem is? Is that sometimes in my sin and struggle, I, I think that I know best. That's not you, it's just me. I, I think that sometimes I forget that God's will is always good and pleasing and perfect. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You should never forget that. That His will is good, pleasing, and perfect at all times. You know, I, I get to revive this every time I'm trying to discipline my daughters, you know? And I know it's not your kids, it's just my kids. But don't you love it when you go to your kids? Especially they're teenagers. They're in their trip, so they don't know that we could talk about them. <laughs> don't you love it when you go to your kids and you say, don't do this because this is not the best for you? Or say, do this because this is the best for you, and they look at you like if you just said the most ignorant thing in the world? They're like, what? And it makes it even better when they say, Papi, you don't know. Don't you love that? <laughs> Everything inside of me feels like Hulk. <laughs> Did you know that you and I do the same thing with God? You don't know. But his will is always good Pleasant and perfect. So the last question is, how do we change? How do we embrace Jesus as the way? How do we take care of our motives so our motives lead to right fruit? How do we learn to allow the will of God to cross our will? And Jesus is going to say, when you have the right foundation, point number four. He talks about two foundations. He talks about the wise man and the foolish man. And he starts with the wise man. In verse 24, he says, therefore, every, everyone who hears these words of Jesus and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And basically what he's saying is that what makes a man wise is that he knows where to put his foundation and the rock. So why is that foundation so important? Verse 25, because the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because he had its foundations on the rock. Church, do not miss this. Jesus says that even if you are the wisest person in the world, life's still difficult. You get rain, you get streams, and you get wind. There is no way around it. 
That's life. What makes a difference is your foundation, the rock. Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus knows that one of his names in the New Testament is the rock, the cornerstone. What he's saying is that the only way we're going to be able to survive all of this and navigate the difficulties of life is where we are grounded in him, who is our rock. But listen up, church. But what matters here is not that Jesus is calling you to hold on to him. The, the image is beautiful because if you know anything about construction, you know that the house does not hold the foundation. It is the foundation that holds the house. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying two things. And this is how we change. And this is how we make Jesus our way. And this is how our motives change. And this is how our will submits to his will. Two things. Number one, it tells you that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, what is going to keep you going is not so much that you hold on to him, but that he holds down to you. See, J.I. Packer, and I shared this years ago, J.I. Packer's wife, this another theologian, um, was losing her memory. And she says that the one thing that, we're here, that, that, uh, that concerned uh, her the most was that she was starting to forget about Jesus. And J.I. Packer, like a good theologian, says, what matters is not that you remember Jesus. What matters is that Jesus will never forget you. I could change that a little, you know? What matters most is not that you hold on to Jesus. What matters most is that he's going to hold on to you. The second thing you gotta remember is the why he's going to hold on to you. Because he went through the storm. He got the wind. He got the rain. He got the cross. But his storm was the punishment of our sin. The wind was what we deserved. The struggle was our judgment. So we could be welcome and loved and accepted and be secure. So here's a question for you Why wouldn't you choose him? Why wouldn't you want to live for him with the right motives and the right fruit? Why wouldn't you surrender your will to him? See, it was the father's will to send him to that cross. It is at the cross where you can see that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. You choose. You choose Jesus and you continue to choose Jesus. Because he's our rock. He is the one, the one that is the best way. He is the giver of life. He is the one that makes life so worthy. He is the one that is worth us living for and us dying for. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, I don't know how many of my brothers and sisters will agree in saying what I'm about to say. But I pray that this may be true. Today, Lord, we choose Jesus. Today, Lord, we choose life. Today, Lord, we want to choose to live with the right motives, giving the right fruit. Today, Lord, we choose to surrender our will to your will. Today, Lord, we choose the right foundation, the right rock. That even when the storm comes, we choose to believe that you will hold on to us. If you went to the cross and never came down on our behalf, we go to you and we stick with you. Could you please make it happen? And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and we all say... Let's stand and ask God to give us the wisdom and the courage to respond as he would have us.
seek out to serve the Lord like he asked. Let me just say then to you, thanks for coming. Church, you are sent. We love you. Have a blessed day.